0: Well, good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Doug Penny, as as Ed said. Um, My family and I have been members at Exchange for a little over nine years. Um, During that time, I've had the privilege to serve on the stewardship team for about the past eight years and then serve as one of the elders here for the past four years. And I don't know about you guys, but I am super excited about what the Lord is doing at Exchange right now. And how he is shaping and molding us into his people. Uh, It's just been so exciting to see as we've been walking through this series. That being said, um, I'm I'm excited to be sharing with you guys this morning, but I definitely feel the weight and the burden of opening the Word of God. So would you guys pray with me as we get started that the Lord would just um, help me to do this. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your Word. I thank you for your church. And that we get to come together this morning and open your word and learn from you. Lord, I pray that that my words would not be spoken this morning, uh, but that you would speak through me. Pray that I could step aside and uh, make much of you this morning. Lord, I pray as we open your word, that we can be comforted by your word. Lord, that we can be convicted by your word. Lord, and that we can be conformed to be more like you. We thank you for your word, and I pray for our time this morning. Amen. So we've been looking at the past several weeks, um, these revised membership commitments that we're, we're going through and, and we're going to commit to together as a church. We've seen three of them or four of them so far, so I wanted to review those real quickly, and then we'll jump into uh, talking about our fourth one again. So our first commitment we looked at was, I commit to pursuing community and embracing accountability then we took a look at i commit to submitting to the care correction and protection of leadership our third one was i commit to protecting the unity and health of exchange and then last week brian introduced us to the fourth commitment which is i commit to sharing time resources and gifts towards the mission of exchange so this morning we're gonna um, take a look at a parable. Um, that Jesus shared in Matthew 25. So, if you want to go ahead and open your Word, if you have a copy, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 is where we're going to start. There, we're going to got a lot of scripture to cover, though. If you if you don't have the Bible with you, or you've got your phone, you can go to the church center app. There's um, when you open that, there's a banner that says sermon notes, I believe, or um, is that what it says? Sermon notes. You can tap on that, and it'll take you to references to all of the scripture we're going to be covering today. So this parable is one of four that Jesus shares in this um, these couple of chapters in Matthew with his disciples to help them better understand what the kingdom of heaven will be like. In this particular parable, Jesus is teaching that we'll all be held accountable for what he's given us to manage. We're simply stewards of the Lord's incredible gifts. Like I said, we've got a, a lot to cover. I've got a lot of different scriptures I'm trying to figure out how to best arrange everything up here. Um, So let's go ahead and get started. So stewardship is a careful responsibility, is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted into one's care. You're probably familiar with the term steward or stewardess from the airline industry. I think they call them flight attendants now, but that's sort of a throwback. They would be a steward or stewardess, and they would care for you as you're on the flight, right? You're entrusted to them as you're on this flight. They make sure you have a good flight and your travel goes smooth. Um, But the origin of that word or the definition of that word goes back way beyond the the airline industry. Um, Early in Genesis, we actually see a beautiful picture of stewardship in Joseph's life. First, we see him as a steward in Potiphar's house, um, and then after... An unfortunate time in prison there, the Lord used that, and he becomes steward as second-in-command in in Egypt and literally saves millions of people's lives by the way he stewarded the resources there in Egypt. Probably get a couple of eye rolls at this, but it's hard for me to think about stewardship, um, having read the Lord of the Rings multiple times, without thinking about the kingdom of Gondor in the Lord of the Rings. If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm going to give you a high-level overview here. So the kingdom of Gondor had been without a king for almost a thousand years, and in their place, they had these stewards that were reigning. They were called the ruling stewards, and it was a succession, you know, its handed down from father to son, but what's interesting is these ruling stewards were put in place to protect and manage the kingdom, but they were not the king. It's a very uh, detailed story, so I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't, but At the time of the Lord of the Rings, the ruling steward is a guy named Denethor. Now, as ruling steward, Denethor has the power of the king, but without the title. His primary task is to do whatever is best for Gondor in the absence of the rightful ruler. And it's interesting, as a consistent reminder um, of his place, he is not able to sit on the throne in Gondor. Tolkien describes it like this in his book. At the far end, upon a dais of many steps, was set a throne under a canopy of marble shaped like a crowned helm. Behind it was carved upon the wall and set with gems, an image of a tree and a flower. But the throne was empty. At the foot of the the dais, upon the lowest step, which was broad and deep, there was a stone chair black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man gazing at his lap. This old man was Denethor. So he had to sit in the throne room, this glorious throne up on the dais there, but he sat in an unadorned black chair at the bottom as a reminder that he was not the king. He's simply a steward at this time. Unfortunately, Denethor was not a very good steward. We get the picture as we read through the book that um, he really dreaded the return of the king, knowing that when the king returned, he would have to give up all of his power. We often see him making decisions based on his own desire for preservation, rather than based on what's best for Gondor. So why do I bring this illustration up? I think that the concept of stewardship has really been lost on us today. We're very familiar with the idea of ownership, um, mortgages, leases, loans, But we have very little knowledge of what stewardship means, even though it's a critical concept explained throughout the Bible. So what ends up happening to Denethor? Well, he's sort of drunk with corruption and power, and he really doesn't want to hand over a rule. And so he ends up taking his own life, ending uh, his years of poor stewardship. Now his son, Faramir, who is to take his place as the new steward, Almost immediately after the death of Denethor, Faramir becomes the new ruling steward, but the rightful king returns to Gondor. Faramir now has the opportunity to prove his faithfulness as a steward. How is he going to respond? We'll come back to that in a little bit. But first, let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about stewardship. However, before we jump into this parable, like I said, we're going to be in Matthew 25, but I want to set up a few things for us. And this is what I think is the most important principle of stewardship. When you leave here today, this is a sentence I want you to remember. God owns it. We manage it. It's as simple as that. God owns it. We manage it. Because God created this world and everything in it, God owns it all. Deuteronomy 10.14 we read, Behold, the Lord your God, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. In David's prayer before all of Israel in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 14, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? I love this line. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. God himself, speaking to Job in chapter 41, verse 11, says this, "'Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine.'" Psalm 24, 1 through 2, "'The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers.'" Continuing Psalm 50, 10 through 11, "'For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills.'" I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. John says in John 3.27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. God owns it all. There's nothing we have that God has not given us and that he does not own. He owns it all. So God owns it and we manage it. God owns it all, but he delegates the management of these resources to you and I. God graciously gives us what he has, and he instructs us to use his things well, to use them in ways that are consistent with his desires and his purposes. We see this mandate from the very beginning of time when God created the world and then created humans. He immediately assigned them this job we see in Genesis 128. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he immediately gives man a job to do, to steward these resources, to manage these resources, these gifts from him. Now, the difference between an owner and a steward is essentially accountability. Owners have rights... Stewards have responsibilities. Owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. So let's use the the associative property here for math. I think that's what it was called. So owners have rights. Stewards have responsibility. Who owns it all? God. God owns it all. Who are the stewards? We are. Okay? So God has all the rights. And we have responsibilities. Owners have rights, stewards have responsibilities. With that in mind, let's jump now into our parable here in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. We're gonna pause there for a second and notice a few things. So the master gave to each of his servants according to his ability. I think this is really important for us to see and to recognize that he gave different amounts, right? He gave one five, he gave one two talents, and one he gave one talent. And a talent, there's lots of debate. It's essentially a unit of, of currency at this time. It was uh, often referred to as a weight, a talent. And so their debates on was this like a weight of gold or uh, a certain currency. Essentially, they say that it was about 20 years worth of wages. So it's a pretty pretty good amount, one talent, 20 years worth of wages. But he gave to each of these servants based on their ability, based on what he knew about them. Right? So these servants, we can assume, we don't know much here, but in this parable, we would assume these servants have been working with this master for a while. He trusted them with large sums of money. And so he knew them and he gave them different amounts based on what he knew about them. So I think that phrase, according to his ability, is really important for us to see. So it's like this, it's like if we're going to go out and help, uh, a lot of you know the Cahoots have a farm out there. So if we were to go out and help Brian on his farm, a group of us went out there. And uh, Brian's looking around and he sees a couple of really uh, uh, fit, strong men or women. Um, you know, uh, a Taylor, a Jonathan Mestis, a uh, uh, um, Jonathan Wall, you know, someone who's just really fit. He's like, hey guys... I need you to go over and move these 75-pound bags of feed over to the barn. That makes sense. He looks at them. He's like, yeah, they can handle this. He calls out to me and says, hey, Doug, do you think we've got some 10-pound salt blocks here? Do you think you can move those over to the barn for us? So he knows our abilities, and he's asking us to do different things. But what he's asking us to do isn't as important as what we do with that, how we perform our tasks. Do we follow through with it? Or do we um, slack off or just decide, oh, I'm um, too good for that? So, the Lord has gifted each of us differently and has given us different amounts to work with. The amount we have is not important, as we'll see shortly. It's what we do with it. When we start comparing ourselves and what we have to others, we always end up becoming Dissatisfied. Why is that? Well, for one thing, it's prideful to compare ourselves to others. Also, we never compare ourselves to those who have less than us. We always end up comparing ourselves to those who have more, which really does not do good for our soul. So there are currently about 8 billion people in the world. Okay, According to Forbes, in 2022, there were 2,668 billionaires in the world. 2,268 out of 8 billion people. So when you see a news story or or you're scrolling on Instagram or Facebook and you see these lives of luxury and, and you think, man, these people have it so good. They've got life so easy. You're looking at which. I would argue they probably don't. Obviously, what's posted on Instagram is what they want you to see, but that's a side note. But you're looking at, if if I've got the math right, and if I can even say this right, one 30th millionth of 1% of the world population. That's an extremely small amount of people. On the flip side of that, what if we decided when we got ready to compare ourselves, we said, you know what, I-, I need to have a different perspective here. I'm gonna look at those who have less than me. According to the World Bank's data, there are more than two billion people with a B who live on the world, live in the world, that live on less than four dollars per day. Four dollars. Now There can be arguments about, well, a dollar goes further in other places and whatnot. But the point is, $4 a day. If you're a little slow on the math, that's a quarter of the world's population. One in four people live on less than $4 a day. My purpose in bringing this up is not to make anybody feel guilty or, or anything like that. It's just to help us gain perspective, right? The amount we have is not what's important. It's what we do with it. Let's continue on, Uh, going back to our, our parable here, verse 16. So the master went away, and we see what they do now, the servants. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Hmm. So the first two servants, they got to work right away. They thought, the master has entrusted me with something. I want to do something with it. I want to improve what he's given me. And they got to work right away. The third servant, he went and dug a hole in the ground and just hid the money. Now, I I want to be compassionate towards people. And so, you know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe... He knew the market had been a little jumpy and he was like, I just, I don't want to lose the money. I want to, I want to be sure it's safe and secure. Maybe he didn't know that much about like economics and finance and really didn't know what to do with it. And so he thought the safest thing is I'll just put it away. And that way, at the very least, I can just give him back what he gave me originally. But if you remember earlier, at the beginning of this passage, we saw that the master gave to each servant based on their ability. So apparently the master felt that this particular servant was competent enough to make something of the one talent he gave him. But what does he end up doing? He digs a hole and buries it in the ground. So verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Let's pause here and look at these two servants so far who actually did something with what their master gave them. I want us to look at how the master rewarded these first two servants. The first thing I want you to see is, remember, he gave them different amounts. He gave the first one five talents, and he gave the second one two talents. They both had a return on that investment. They, they both gave him back more, but he rewarded them exactly the same. Okay, the the words I even went and looked, I was sharing with Kimberly, the Greek here is exactly the same wording for these two, two different servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the amount that they returned to him wasn't what was important. It was that they had done a good job with what he had given them to steward, to take care of. Second, because they were faithful with what they were given, he's going to entrust to them more. So see, whether we have a little or much, our responsibility as stewards remains the same. Faithfulness to the master. Faithfulness to what he has entrusted us with. Last thing I want you to notice here is the phrase, Enter into the joy of your master. It's sort of strange wording there, but it's very purposeful. Obviously, as we're reading through this parable, we see Jesus as the master. So enter into the joy of your master. Being a steward is a duty that we're called to as believers, but it's a duty that leads to joy. This should not be seen as a burden, but an incredible opportunity for us to experience the joy of the Lord. So let me give you a personal example of this uh, from, from our lives. When our daughter Lydia um, decided that she was going to go on the world race with Adventures and Missions, it was a nine-month uh, program where she traveled around the world um, doing missions in three different countries, um, she had to start fundraising. It was not an inexpensive trip to take. And while there was no way that Kimberly and I could just write a check for the amount that she needed, we did know that we could start giving each month to this so that we could help offset, you know, this fundraising she was doing. Well, time moves forward a little bit. Lydia had the opportunity to share here at Exchange about her trip just before she was leaving for the training camp down in Georgia. And Exchange rallied behind her and ended up helping her become fully funded just before she left to go to to go to training camp. That was a incredible blessing um, from our church. It was Just amazing, and it was a blessing to her to not have to worry about continuing to raise funds because Adventures and Missions has a, a policy that you have to continue raising funds until you're done. If you reach the halfway point of the trip and you still haven't raised all of your funds, they kick a couple of things into gear and like try to help you and give you a month or two to continue. But ultimately, if you cannot finish raising all the funds you need, you'll end up having to come off the field. So it was a blessing for her to not have to worry about that. But at this point, Kimberly and I had a decision to make, right? We could have chosen to just divert that money we had been given towards Lydia back into our budget and use it in some other way. Um, But we knew that some of Lydia's teammates were still fundraising. So we decided to just shift that and start sort of rotating through all of her team members each month to, to give towards their fundraising goal. So fast forward uh, about seven months into the trip, uh, back in April, Kimberly and I had the opportunity to go down to Guatemala and serve alongside Lydia and the rest of her team. It's hard for me to even describe the joy it was to see how the Lord had been working through these young people's lives and through the lives of those that they came in contact with on this mission. Uh, they were both being transformed we received a tremendous amount of joy through that particular opportunity to steward some of the resources the Lord had provided us with. So don't miss this. Being a faithful steward allows you to enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pick up with uh, our third servant here and see how things go for him. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money and the bankers with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be be weeping and gnashing of teeth. teeth. So obviously the master expected something more from this servant. He had entrusted him with a talent, based on what he knew of that servant's abilities, and the master expected him to do something with it. Well, he did nothing. He went and buried the coin and did nothing. No effort, no work, just nothing. This is not a picture of faithful stewardship. And then not only was he not a faithful steward, but he ends up almost turning it on the master and blaming him, blaming the master for his failure, and not taking responsibility for what he's entrusted to, him. he said, "I knew you to be a hard man." So it's like he's blaming it on the master. Why he didn't do anything. Rightly so, the master is furious with this servant. He takes away the talent he'd been given and casts him into the outer darkness. So we will be held accountable for that which with with which we have been entrusted. Stewardship entails accountability. We've all been given time, talents, and treasures by the Lord. He's entrusted us with vast resources and is expecting us to manage them and use them for his glory. Chapters 24 and 25 here in Matthew, um, in these chapters, the disciples have just asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know when the end times are near? And Jesus, this is one of the parables, but he uses several parables here to explain to them that no one knows the hour, But the important thing is to be prepared, to be watchful, and to be working. We're going to be held accountable for what the Lord has given to us and entrusted us with. So stewardship entails accountability. Let's take a few minutes to look at how we might be good stewards of our time, talents, and treasures. Scripture exhorts us over and over to invest our time wisely. Reminding us that God determines the length of our stay on earth. Paul says in Ephesians 5 5 through 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Time is really our most valuable asset, yet so often we steward it foolishly. You know, most time is not wasted in hours, but in minutes. We each have 168 hours per week, 10,080 minutes every week that we get to invest, that we get to steward. If we're not purposeful with budgeting our time, our schedule will quickly get cluttered with activities that may be good, but may not be the best. Um, It's interesting. I have in my notes. How much time do you spend scrolling? And I don't just want to leave it at that, but it it struck me this week how um, commonplace uh, the smartphone has become in society and in our culture. We don't really think anything of someone on a phone scrolling through. Maybe they're looking at news. Maybe they're reading stories. Maybe whatever. They're on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever. It has become so commonplace in our culture, we really don't give it a second thought. How much time do you actually spend that's useful, that's beneficial, that's helpful on that device? Has anyone ever asked you, uh, you know, hey, what are you up to? And you say, oh, I'm just wasting time. I'm just wasting time. I'm just hanging out, wasting some time. You know, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been purchased for a price, redeemed and made new creations, none of us should just be wasting time. You cannot get those minutes back. But we can redeem the time ahead of us. How are you using your time to glorify the King? Does this mean you should never have any downtime? I mean, we all want to have time to relax and, and you know, do fun things, and absolutely not. I'm not saying you need to come up with some contraption and you have the Bible in front of you all the time as you're walking around so you can be holy. But it does mean we need to really be critical taking a critical look at how are we spending our time? How are we allowing those minutes and hours to escape that we we can't get back? Are we using them in a way that's renewing our minds? Annie Dillard, in her book, The Writing Life, says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim I love this phrase. It is a net for catching days. It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. Each second, minute, and hour that ticks by is spent. You can't get it back. We have no power over past time, but time to come provides each of us with the possibility of moral and spiritual choices for how we will spend it. Praise the Lord that his mercies are new today and again tomorrow. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 say, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Additionally, God has entrusted each of us with various abilities. And as good stewards, we must use them for His glory and not our own. This is true not only of your quote-unquote natural abilities, but also the spiritual gifts we've been, we have received as believers. Paul says in Romans 12:6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use these gifts that have been given to us. As stewards, it's important for us to learn to concentrate on the things we can do well, on the areas and, um, that we have been gifted in, and not worry about the things we cannot do. <laughs> This doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to learn new things and better ourselves, but we need to guard against becoming envious or coveting another person's abilities. God has uniquely equipped each person at exchange to fulfill the purpose to which he has called us. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we're going to hear next week, Each of us has been given a specific sphere of influence, large or small, that the Lord has called us into. Regardless of what we've been given, every steward will be judged on the same scale, faithfulness. It's not the size for a ministry that counts, but what we do with that with which we have been entrusted. So take some time this week to reflect on the gifts and the talents the Lord has given you. How can you most effectively use those to honor the Lord? Last, God has entrusted us with treasures, not only financial resources, but also bodies and minds that we're called to steward. But it's interesting, did you know that there are over 2,300 verses in Scripture that deal with money or possessions? Over 10% of the New Testament relates directly to financial matters. Why in the world would there be such an emphasis on money? I think there are a few reasons. One might be that God knew we would have trouble managing our money and that we would spend a great deal of time earning, spending, and investing money. Another might be that money has a profound impact on our interpersonal relationships. Many people spend more than half of their time thinking about money and possessions, and a majority of marital conflict and divorce arises from financial issues. Last, I think the way we use our money is a real measure of our commitment to Christ. The great reformer Martin Luther uh, had a very interesting quote. He said, people go through three conversions, the conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. Unfortunately, not all at the same time. As Brian mentioned last week, we're called to surrendered giving. So let's take a look uh, at what this is, and let's talk about the concept of a tithe a little bit, because I don't think we talk about that enough. So what is a tithe, this idea of a tithe? The first reference we see to a tithe, which means one-tenth, is found in Genesis 14.20. Brian references last week, but we see here Abraham has just rescued his nephew Lot from a group of kings, and he plundered all of their goods, and he meets up with Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And Abraham gives Melchizedek 10% of all he took. Fast forward a little bit, we see again in Genesis 28-22, Jacob um, has just had this incredible dream, um, and he has seen basically God in heaven, and he gets up the next morning and makes a vow that he will give 10% of everything to the Lord. So we start to see this pattern of giving. Moving forward into the Mosaic economy, we see this concept formalized, in, the, uh, in, the, in a mandatory annual offering that's shown in Leviticus 2730. So at the most basic level, a tithe or tithing is the idea of giving one-tenth of everything you have back to the Lord. Oftentimes people will say the tithe was part of the Old Covenant, though. We don't live under that burden anymore. We're free. Jesus came to free us from the Old Testament. While it's true we don't live under the Old Covenant any longer... There are a couple of points that I want to draw your attention to on why I think the tithe is still an important part of worship for believers today. We saw in the passage last week that all the way back to Cain and Abel, there was a habit or practice of paying back to God the first fruits of our labor. Brian shared several uh, passages last week, so we don't need to go back through all of those again, but there are several references to offerings and tithing in the Old Testament. So we see it become a habit um, in their life. It's interesting. We were talking to our daughter Lydia last night, and she was sharing about this conference that she was at. It was a women in business conference, and one of the ladies who was speaking said, You know, um, volunteering with nonprofits, giving towards philanthropic causes, that doesn't just happen when you retire, that should happen right at the outset. So you develop this habit throughout your career of giving. I think the same is true for us in the Christian life. We shouldn't think that, oh, you know, down the road I'll have more and I can give then. No, you're not going to have a switch that just automatically flips and you're all of a sudden going to say, hey, I can start giving now. It should be a habit that we're in right now to be giving to the Lord. At no point, um, at no point does the New Testament supersede this idea of a tithe. So yes, we don't live under the Old Covenant any longer, but at no point does the New Testament supersede this. In fact, Jesus himself refers to the tithe when he's rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you tithe mint and dill and cumin "'and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, "'justice and mercy and faithfulness. "'These you ought to have done "'without neglecting the others.'" So Jesus is even reinforcing the tithe there. He's saying, yes, you should have focused on justice and mercy and faithfulness, but you should not have been neglecting the tithe either. Further, while Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, he didn't render it irrelevant. Otherwise, it wouldn't take up so much of our Bible. There are specific regulations in the Old Testament that no longer apply, but the basic principle behind those regulations carries on. So for example, I don't need to build a parapet a little wall around the roof of my house, right? My neighbor's not going on my roof. We're not cooking food up there or sitting out there. I don't have to worry about having a little wall so he doesn't fall off and die as a way to love my neighbor. I don't have to do that anymore. But I am still called to love my neighbor. So while this detailed regulation that was intended for ancient Israel, they had a a regulation, they had to build a parapet on their roof. That doesn't apply to us any longer, but the principle backing that up, the idea of loving your neighbor, is still an ongoing principle that we practice today. Tithing is an act of trust and dependence on God. By giving my full tithe, I'm turning over full control to God. I'm saying, God, I trust that you'll provide for my needs, even when I don't understand how. And I think this is important because often when we want to sit down, if you budget your finances... It's easy to start with, what are the bills I have to pay this month? How much am I going to need for groceries this month? Um, What are the activities I know of that we're going to be doing that I need to be sure we have money for this month? And then we get down to the bottom, and it's like, okay, got a little bit left over. I can give that to the church. But when we approach this from the different perspective of saying, no, Lord, I trust you with everything you have given me, I'm gonna take that out at the top. I'm gonna say, here's the 10% that you've asked for, and I'm gonna give that back to you. Then you start budgeting those other areas. You're saying, Lord, I trust you. I don't know what's gonna come of this, but I trust you. I remember a long time ago, 20 plus years ago, when Kimberly and I first moved up to Wake Forest, um, we were a young married couple. Both of us were working part-time at that point. And we just did not have much. Uh, the seminary has this great thing called the sharing shop. I think they still have it, do they? Um, where basically you could go like once a week and get groceries and all kinds of stuff. And let me tell you, we took full advantage of that. But when I would sit down and try to budget out our month, we never had enough. But we always had enough, right? We never got to the end of a month and we're hungry, We never got to the end of a month and couldn't pay our rent. The Lord provides. It's hard to believe that we're approaching uh, the end of another year, but we are. Maybe now's a good time to pray through how the Lord might be calling you to use your resources for the next year. Look at where and how you're investing your time, talents, and treasure. Are you using these in ways that are consistent with His desires and His purposes? Just as we saw in the parable of the talents, God has entrusted each of us with different resources. For some of us, writing a check is an easy thing to do. But for others, it becomes an extreme demonstration of faith every month. For some, giving of your time to care for the children of exchange is a great joy, while for others, it's a real test of patience. As we've seen, the amounts or kinds of resources, gifts, or talents we have been given are not important, but how we steward them and use them is of the utmost importance. How will you be found, or will you be found as a faithful steward? Remember, God owns it. We manage it. I read an interesting antidote this week about John Wesley, um, A distraught man furiously rode his horse up to John Wesley, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Weighing the news a moment, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. Let's jump back now to the kingdom of Gondor. The rightful heir to the throne has just returned. Faramir now has a choice. How is he going to respond to this rightful heir? I'm just going to read this as Tolkien writes it because it's, it's great. I'll try not to get emotional as I'm reading it. Faramir met Argon, the rightful king, in the midst of those there assembled, and he knelt and said, The last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office. Then Faramir stood up and spoke in a clear voice, Men of Gondor, Here now, the steward of this realm, behold, one has come to claim the kingship again at last. Here's Argon, son of Arathon. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the host and all the people cried yea with one voice. Moments later, after the new rightful king had been crowned, it's Faramir who leads the cries of behold the king. Faramir was a good and faithful steward who was ready to hand over what had been entrusted to him, to its rightful owner. When the king returns, he'll ask each of us if we've been faithful stewards. He'll inspect the evidence, and where he gave much, he'll expect much in return. Will we be ready to joyfully hand over what he has entrusted to us? By committing to be a member of exchange, you're committing to faithful stewardship. You're committing to not look at what you have as your own, but as the Lord's. Remember, owners have rights, but stewards have responsibilities. I pray that we'll each be faithful with what he has given us so that we can hear him say, well done, enter into my joy. Our prayer team is going to be available in the back if you'd like them to pray with you or for you. Maybe you need prayer and trusting the Lord to steward well what he's given you. Maybe you need prayer for how best to use the gifts and abilities the Lord has blessed you with, or how best to manage your time. Whatever the need, they would be honored to pray with you in the back. Let me pray for us before Jesse leads us in a song. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And I'm so thankful for exchange in this church body you have given us to join together, to pursue you, to make much of you, and to faithfully steward what you have given us. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.